What's up? It's Kaylee Cuoco. When it comes to travel, we all have a happy place. I just went to my happy place. I just went to Maui, and it was truly amazing. Priceline has always been about getting you to your happy place for a happy price with deals you really can't find anywhere else, like up to 60% off select hotels in Costa Rica or five-star hotels for two-star prices in Cabo. Go to your happy place for a happy price. Go to your happy price, Priceline. Hey everyone, welcome to The Final Four is Not on the Schedule. I'm your host Eric, alongside with expert analyst Rod. Thanks for joining us on the best MSU basketball podcast featuring an in-depth recruiting, game matchup, and post-game analysis. We dive deep to give you the best tools to enjoy the Spartans and impress your friends and family. Hey everybody, it's Eric alongside Rod. We're here to continue our Big Ten previews. We're going to discuss number nine, Rutgers. But before we begin, just like to remind you that if you like what we're doing, if you want to support the show, you can certainly come on over to tffinots.com or that's the final four is not on the schedule.com. You can join our Spartan community at the forum. It's all free. You can also support us financially. You can do that at tffinots.com slash support. You can support us through Patreon as becoming a monthly pledge member. The different levels can give you different benefits including merchandise and an opportunity to sponsor and advertise in the show. We also accept one-time donations via PayPal and Venmo. And you also have opportunities if you want to advertise and sponsor more shows. There are ways to contact us and find out more about that. So let's talk about Rutgers. Rutgers has been a program that has been on the rise for sure. They were the doormat for ever since they joined the Big Ten until really, I think, pretty much till Steve Peichel took over. And since then, they've really turned things around and are now a team that is one that you have to contend with and think about every season. Last season, they went 18 and 14, 12 and 8 in the Big Ten. On Ken Palm, they ranked 77th in offense, or sorry, 77th, offense 96th, and defense 53rd. They weren't really great in offense in anything. They kind of uh, were 126 on uh, transitional. Uh, let me try. So they weren't very good. On defense, they were number 64 against the twos, 51st in block percentage, 77th in steal percentage. And they really struggled right out of the gate. They had a really tough time in their non-conference schedule, and it didn't look like they were going to have much chance of repeating their previous success and make the NCAA tournament. But they just squeaked in in the play-in game and lost really a a game that I think they should have won uh, to Notre Dame in double overtime. Yeah, um, I vividly remember having discussions on this podcast at some point in January, I, I think, I think leading into the game against Michigan state and talking about how, well, you know, Rutgers is still dangerous on any given day, but they've got no chance to make the NCAA tournament. They had just dug such a huge hole for themselves. And, and honestly, this is one that you really see the difference between Ken Palm and the various metrics that the committee is obviously, and I didn't go back to check where they were ranked in the net, but I have to assume it was significantly higher than 77th because, um, or 78th, whatever they were, um, because that's just, that, that is so far outside the range of even a, a, a play-in team um, that it, it yeah. I, and, and I just didn't think that there was any kind of reasonable chance, but the fact is, and this is something that you always have to keep in mind. If you're a fan of a big 10 team, 
there are usually going to be enough opportunities for quality wins in any season in the Big Ten that you can't say somebody is out of it completely at a fairly early stage. You can do that if we're down to the last two, three weeks. It becomes pretty obvious what's in front of you. But Rutgers, at the, and I should have known better, Rutgers at that time that I was declaring them done, and I think the world was, hadn't shown any signs they were going to get off the mat. <laughs> they just really struggled. And they had enough time and they had enough opportunities for big wins. And the fact, what were they, 12 and 8 in the league? You go 12 and 8 in the Big Ten, you're going to have a decent chance to make the tournament, provided that enough of those 12 came against good teams. And that's exactly what the scenario was for Rutgers. And so they make the tournament for the second year in a row. And honestly, but for COVID canceling the 2020, they'd be riding a three-year streak, which if you know anything about the history of this program is remarkable and to say the least, and (laughs) and it really goes to show you what Steve Peichel has done. Now I'll, I'll take the hit for calling Rutgers DOA too early last year, but I will take credit for spotting Steve Peichel early on in his tenure as a guy who could get it right there. And that's exactly what he's done. Um, he has, and we've talked about it a lot already on these previews when we talk about Penn State and Minnesota and maybe the negative side of it, uh, a program like Nebraska or to some extent Northwestern. Establishing your program staples, who you are, the standards, and getting that right is such a key component. And then after that, it's not sufficient. You have to add talent. In, in Peichel's case, those first two, three years, they were very competitive because he stressed defense, rebounding, physical toughness. The problem was he just didn't have enough offensive talent to break through to that next level, you know? Um, and that's, that's what he's done and why subsequent to that and why we've seen this move in the last three years of Rutgers to another level it's because not only can they check not only can they rebound the way that they have in fact last year arguably they weren't really great in either of those categories but he's gotten a better caliber of player good enough to make plays offensively when they need to and that's made the difference you know um, they've had in in ron harper jr They've had a guy who for the last three years he played there was legitimately a star. You know, he was a guy that could go out and drop 25 on anybody, any given night. So that's a, that's a big change from what they had even earlier in his tenure. You know, now, now the trick for Pykel and it's what we'll talk about to some extent, this podcast is okay. He had this success largely with a consistent core of guys for the most part, can he now sustain it as the roster starts to turn over and you start having some new faces come into the frame? That's the challenge. I was going to say, when you have a team that is primarily comprised of one class, you're going to, you at some point have to get to the point where you can have players you bring in quality every year versus sort of like every three or four years, you bring in a core of of players who are going to, you know, be successful. And that's, you know, that's where he is right now, right? He's turning that over to the next 
classes that are kind of going on. We'll talk about this as we go too, but you know, I felt what was going to need to happen is he was eventually going to need to start being able to compete for and actually win some recruitments in New Jersey of high level talent, that that was the best bet to do what was needed to elevate the program. He's done a little of that. Maybe not as much as I thought he might have to, you know, for the most part they're they have ridden their success on the backs of good, but not elite talent. You know, they haven't yet had that breakthrough where they had a class where they've got, you know, three top 100 guys, basically the stuff that Michigan state fans and people listening to this podcast take completely for granted, you know, that every year Michigan state's yeah. recruiting class is typically made up of top 100 guys at Rutgers that if you get one, that's considered pretty good. Michigan state's 2023 class has four, <laughs> you know, so just to put it yeah. into perspective <laughs> and their 2022 class, this year's freshman class, both guys are, I'm sorry, two of the three, since Carson Cooper was a late addition were top 100, you know, it's standard normal here. Right. It's not normal a place like Rutgers, but they've still been able to do it. Now the trick is, can he keep doing what he's been doing and maybe elevate it even a step further by starting to get the occasional truly elite guy? He's competed for some. He just hasn't landed them yet. It's interesting because you look at it and you say, well, you know, they, you're recruiting a ninth guy who's ranked 90th or 85th, not recognizing the 390 programs that are Division One, and, you know, they're only 100 players right. in the top 100. <laughs> so to, to get one of them is actually pretty good. Even Power Five conferences, I mean, how many teams is that? That's, I mean, that's got to be 60 teams, right? So if you're pulling two or three out of the top 100, clearly there are other programs are getting zero. And so it's easy to forget that as Michigan State fans, you know, you're sort of blessed with riches. You just look at the rest of the big 10 and, you know, most of the programs we've covered to date in this thing in our preview, again, if they land one top 100 guy, that's a good year. You know, Northwestern rarely in their history has landed one, you know, Nebraska rarely in their history has landed one Rutgers, same thing. So, when I say Michigan state fans are spoiled, that's one of the things I'm talking about because every single year you have, I mean, I I'm straining to remember the last time Michigan state didn't have multiple top 100 guys in a recruiting class. Um, I can't think of one. I mean, even classes that people have bagged on like the, uh, Oh, the 2015 class or 2014 class. I'm sorry with Tom, Tom Nairn and, and Javon Bess and, uh, and Marvin Clark that had multiple top 100 guys in it. So uh, it can, people need to get a grip is part of my point there, but bringing it back to Rutgers, it's a sign that they are elevating this thing slowly, steadily. And that's been Steve Peichel's deal is he hasn't taken any shortcuts. He's done it the right way. And it's now a really competitive program. They, they've got players, they've got a style of play that works, and they've got a hell of a home court advantage all of a sudden at the rack. That is, I was just reading an article before we started recording uh, from CBS Sports, Matt Norlander, where they had um, toughest places for an opponent to play in college basketball. And they had four different, four different categories 
where schools got at least multiple votes from other D1 head coaches. By the way, Michigan State was in the third category, so that put it somewhere on the fringe of the top 10, which I, I'm not going to argue with. Mm-hmm. Uh, but Rutgers was in the next level down from that, which means more than one coach mentioned Rutgers. And they talked about that, and they said, you go in – and it's it's like you've got you know you've only got the crowd substantially on one side, and the guy said it's like you're you're facing a wall, and they're all on you, and it's <laughs> incredibly tough to win there to even hear yourself think when they're really when they're really going, and that's one thing that's changed is the engagement with the program is night and day. I mean, I'm sure a lot of our listeners can remember what it was like when Rutgers first joined the conference. Eddie Jordan was coaching there a guy with NBA experience, you know, certainly a guy who knows basketball and who played at Rutgers, but it, it was moribund. I mean, the program had been down for so long. Nobody cared. Well, you can't say that now. So let's talk about the players who are departing this season. And we'll start with the most important one, uh, Roy, Ron Harper Jr. One of definitely one of their best players they've ever had at Rutgers. He shot uh, 44, 40, and 80, averaging 15.8 points a game. He grabbed 5.9 rebounds a game. And I think, you know, the encapsulation of uh, Harper's career was really shown in that game against Purdue. So Rutgers had fallen, as we were talking about this before, in their non-conference. They dropped three in a row to DePaul, Lafayette, UMass. Then they lose, uh, they beat with Clemson lose to Illinois by over 30 points in Champaign to start the Big Ten 0-1 in December, and then come back, and Ron Harper hits a shot from, it was, was it half court? It was yeah, pretty it was close. Yeah, half court, yep. And hits a three, they win 70-68, and beat Purdue, who at that time, it was consensus, easily the best team in the Big Ten. I right. don't think there's any question that people, that's where everyone's head was, uh, which we know that didn't play out exactly the way uh, we anticipated. But that sort of seemed to sort of turn things around. Of course, then they've dropped the game against Seton Hall right after that. Uh, but then they go on a winning streak and then sort of you know work their way to where we thought they did. But that was that was Ron Harper sort of, right? That was a guy who, and he's a guy who, to me, never looked like a basketball player. He looked like a football player who happened to be playing on the basketball court just with his build and everything. And so I hats off to him for how well he played. That was a critical win, though, because as we were talking about, among those 12 that they got, a good number of them had to be against really good opponents. And, you know, that one was, that one counted a great deal come season's end when the committee was evaluating uh, various programs that were kind of on the fringe of the bubble and it helped Rutgers get in. Uh, Ron Harper Jr. was, I think, one of my favorite players in the league the last few years. You're right about the way he looked. Um, and, and those who remember his father, Ron Harper Sr., know that there's very little similarity between the two of them as basketball players. Ron Harper <laughs> Sr., especially before he had a knee injury, um, was one of a number of guys who in the late 80s, early 90s, were part of the next Jordan conversation. Anytime you had a guy who was six six. Had, had some strength to him, but was a very gifted athlete, would get the next Jordan comparison. Harold Miner at <laughs> USC was another one. There were Roy Marble at Iowa was one. There were several of them. Ron Harper Jr., who played in the MAC, he played at uh, Miami of Ohio, if I remember correctly. Um, he was one. And and he actually had a really nice NBA career. He was, he was a, a guy who seemed on the verge of stardom, when he was with Cleveland early in his career and then 
you know, post-injury kind of on the back end of his career became uh, a very important role player, defensive stopper on some of the Bulls championship teams. But he was a very sleek, athletic guy. And he looked like a bat, like an NBA wing. You know, he looked like a shooting guard. His son, his body's kind of weird for a, for a major yeah, college no, basketball player. Um, didn't really look the part, but man, was he a tough cover because he was so big and so strong that if you had to have a normal Wayne guarding him, they were probably going to be in for a long day because he could take them on the blocks and just kill people down there. And then he shot 40% from three. So you had to guard him at the line. Um, I think the only criticism I have of him last year is he just didn't shoot enough. I would say the same thing. You expect more with that shooting. You expect more yeah. points a game than, 15, it, you know, yeah. and, and it's hard. I have a hard time bagging on somebody for that because, you know, it, it, it demonstrates at the very least, while they're not selfish, you know, but, yeah. but there are times when you look at what a player I've talked for three years running about at a much lesser level, Robbie Baran at Northwestern, everything I see in his numbers and watching him play tells me that guy is doing his team damage by not taking more shots. Well, you could maybe say the same thing about Ron Harper last year. He probably should have shot more. He probably should have been a little greedier. Well, then let's talk about Geo Baker. He is 6'4 guard, averaging 12.6 points a game on 40, 33, and 74 shooting. He's better than 2-1 to one assist to turnover ratio, and he was a really great player. He's a good point guard. I think he's very solid, and um, he'll be you know deeply missed as well, just like Ron Harper. Yeah, you know, Geo Baker is far from a perfect player, but I think I think it's not an accident that when he got there was when Rutgers started to get better. Right. You know, he was an early Pikel recruit who really was there as the program's fortunes rose, you know. Um uh, the knock on him was it was the same thing it was last year. He needed to be just a little better deep shooter to really go up a level. But I give him credit for going from a guy who really did not have a point guard mentality, in my opinion, early on in his career, to a guy who did a pretty good job. I and mean, he wasn't their full time or only guy at the position last year. But Mulcahy has started to take more and more of that role, but he was good. He was good in, in that area of the game. Um, he was a confident player, which again, Rutgers as a program needed guys who played that way. And he played that way. Harper jr. Played that way. They gave this program a different aura about it. You know, guys who knew that they were good enough to be out there on, on the court in a big 10 game and who could beat you, you know? So, um, yes, another important guy to lose. Next would be Jaden Jones, a 6'8 swingman. He played in 17 games a season, averaging 3.6 points a game and 1.2 rebounds a game on 36, 23, and 70 shooting. And he's decided to declare for the NBA draft, which was kind of surprising with that those numbers. <laughs> I saw his name referenced in an article, and you usually see one of these around draft time where they'll talk about guys who had no business declaring and they'll usually be a scout or a front office, uh, an anonymous scout or front office exec quoted as saying, who is, I've never heard of this guy. 
<laughs> not a good well, sign. Well, <laughs> that was James Jones. I saw in an article. Yeah, he was he was pretty highly regarded when he showed up at Rutgers. They they recruited him and thought he really had the ability to be a a breakthrough kind of player. And you know he wasn't consistent by any means, but he showed occasional signs. Terrible decision. I have no idea why, um, uh, but he's gone. So they won't get the chance to see if they could develop him into uh, a more consistent player who could actually contribute at a higher level. Uh, finally, for departing players, Ralph Ag. He's a transfer from San Jose State. Four man played in seventeen games, but didn't do a whole lot production wise. Yeah, you know, it, again, a program like Rutgers is probably going to at least occasionally take a flyer on a guy like AG where they're transferring up because they need depth. And in his case, it was to provide a little depth at the four and it didn't really pan out, but he won't be hard to replace. So let's talk about the returning players for Rutgers. Uh, first is Cliff Omaruye. He's 6'10", 240-pound junior center, really started to come around i think recently he's averaged uh, almost 12 points a game and 7.8 rebounds a game along with one and a quarter blocks per game shot shooting uh, 62 16 and 60 and uh i think he's gonna be a guy who's gonna be a little bit hard to handle on the this season uh, he made and he his the leap that he took was critical to rutgers developing that momentum that got them into the tournament it, he is, uh, we were talking about recruiting. Omarui is the one guy they've gotten who was a top 50 level player and, and who could have gone to a lot of other big time places and chose to go to Rutgers. He's a, he's a New Jersey product. So, you know, all that stuff is good. Um, as a freshman, he was okay. He wasn't bad, but he struggled a little bit. It didn't hurt Rutgers too much because if you remember, they, they still had Miles Johnson who was able to play major minutes. So they didn't need Omarui to be, you know, the guy. He could just play a role. Last year with Johnson having transferred out to UCLA, they really needed him to step up and boy, did he ever. I mean, I was really impressed. We, again, the big 10 absolutely loaded with centers. <laughs> so it is very easy for a good player even to get lost in the shuffle and I do feel that he's one of those guys that that happened to because you look at the numbers and it's impressive for a sophomore. And then if you watched him play, you could see it wasn't all. I mean, when he came there, my understanding was, all right, this is a guy who's very athletically gifted. He's strong, not a lot of polish. You know, it's mostly going to be dunks and putbacks. Not the case. He started to show the beginnings of a real offensive game in the post. So, uh, look, Rutgers needs him to do more. I think he will. I think he'll answer the bell. And I expect him to have a big year. I'm going to be surprised if he doesn't. Yeah, you don't average 12 points a game just on dunks. <laughs> Next would be Caleb McConnell. He's a 6'6 senior guard. He averaged 7 points a game, 5.3 rebounds per game. And was a great individual defender. He shot 40, 27, and 67. So his obviously deficit is that he just can't shoot real well. Yeah. It, boy, if he could find some consistency from three, even be a mid-30s guy, you'd really have something. But Peichel's loved him since he got him, since he showed up there. He's always played a lot, even though he's never really found the jumper. Uh, he has become 
an outstanding individual defender. I think he was conference defensive player of the year last year. I forgot to look that up to confirm it, but I, I think he was um, very, very, very good defensive player. Offensively, you don't love the jump shooting, but he's proven to be a guy who can score some in other ways. And he's Rutgers has developed their, their perimeter group to the point where they've got a number of guys with good size who see the floor well, are willing to share the ball. You know, McConnell's not a pure point guard by any means, but he's a really good secondary ball handling option. And with his size, he can see the floor well. So a very valuable player uh, and a key guy for them. And you were right. He was the Big Ten defensive player. Yeah, I thought he was. Yeah, you're right. Uh, Next is Paul McCahey. And if you're like me and you watch MASH when you're a kid, I can't, ever since he's been a freshman, it's hard for me not to think of Father Mulcahy. And yeah. I, I've always liked him. I mean, part with the name, and of course he's got the headband, so he sticks out a little bit. But I've really enjoyed his game, and I've enjoyed watching him play because I think he's a smart guy. He seems to know wherever it is and what's, and he seems to understand the game and know again one of those guys who knows what who he is. Uh, he's a six six senior point guard. Um, average five, nine points a game on 44, 35, and seventy eight shooting, four point one rebounds per game. And better than five assists per game, you know, with better than a two to one assist to turnover ratio. Um, I agree with all of that. With with one add on comment, I I've always liked his game. In fact, I remember saying a couple of years ago that if Rutgers wanted to get serious about being a tournament team, they need and and developing their offense to the point that they could be that they needed to turn the keys over to Mulcahy. Well, they didn't fully do that. It really took until last season for that to fully happen. But he's he's a very smart player. A Michigan State fans may remember it was absolute torture watching that game in New Jersey last year when MSU visited Rutgers and Mulcahy <laughs> yes. just destroyed MSU in a variety yeah. of ways. He used his size. He hit some shots. Uh, you know, that was a day that Rutgers shot out of their minds. A team that's not a good shooting team was very, very good that day. But that was only part of it. Another part of it was Mulcahy just taking guys to school inside the arc. Um, he's a very good passer, always has been, sees the floor well, makes good decisions. Uh, he's improved as a shooter. Not a great shooter, but a good one. Um, you know, he's... He's the kind of guy that I think would be very easy for opponents to dislike, you know, because he kind of has a, a karate kid reference. He, he would kind of <laughs> seems to be the kind of guy who would have felt at home in Cobra Kai. Yeah. Um, he's just got that vibe about him. Uh, but he's a really good player. And again, a key guy for this team. Part of the reason that I think Omarui is heading for a big year is I think he's got two guards in Mulcahy and McConnell that are going to help him get opportunities. He's not going to have trouble getting the ball on the blocks because these guys are going to make sure he gets it in positions where he can score. That's what I'm expecting. Strike first, strike hard. No mercy, Paul McCain. (laughs) Uh, Next, go to uh, Andre Hyatt, a 6'6", 230-pound junior. He's a transfer from LSU. And uh, they're hoping he fits right, fits in. He averaged 4.3 points a game on 35, 27, and 63 shooting, 2.8 rebounds per game in about 13 minutes a game. 
So obviously have an opportunity to have probably a bigger role in this than he did with LSU. I think he'll push to replace Harper Jr. And obviously he's not he's not shown to be that level of player yet. Yeah, but who is, right? <laughs> right. But there is talent there. And I think, you know, the shooting they think can improve. We'll see if it does. Uh, but you know, he's a good athlete, got the right size to be an undersized four man, which actually I I say that out of habit, but more and more I'm not sure that being a six six, two hundred and twenty-five pound guy really makes you all that undersized anymore, given right. how so many teams have gone, you know. Um, let's say a stretch four, a versatile four. Um, but they need him to be better. You know, he's got experience, he definitely has some talent. He needs to be better and more consistent offensively. Next would be Mawat Mag, a 6'7 junior, averaging 2.9 points a game and 1.9 rebounds a game in 12 minutes. Yeah, uh, you know, a guy that they were they were excited about when they recruited him a couple of years ago. And same thing as with Hyatt. They need a little more from him in terms of what he can bring offensively. They like his size, his length on the, on the wing. He's kind of more of a three. Um, than a four, uh, but we'll see. I, I would imagine he's in line to play a a rotation role at least off the bench. But they would like to see a progression from him offensively. Next is Dean Reber. He's a six ten junior, averaging two point nine points a game and one point three rebounds a game in eight minutes a game, and he shot fifty three, fifty eight, and fifty eight. This is another guy who's in line to compete at the four, and. The numbers, I mean, plus 50% on three, plus 50% overall right? from a 6'10 guy. You really like that. Uh, with him, it's got to, the improvement's got to come on the defensive end, though, because, again, that's something that for Pico is non-negotiable. He's not going to play guys that are turnstiles. So if Reber wants to go from being a bit part guy to playing a big role or even as a starter – He's got to make progress there to allow his offense to really impact games. But I I give him a real chance. They've got a couple guys who fit that category, and he's one of them where I could see a breakthrough happening. Sure. And obviously with that point production, I mean, he's only had 12 attempts in the season, so it's not like a high volume for that. Those three right. But, he, but in fairness to him, it was not a surprise because he was recruited as a guy who had the reputation of being a stretch big, that is what they thought they were getting. So now he's got to do it in a bigger way, bigger volume. The only way he's going to have a chance to do that is if he's better defensively to earn the minutes, you know? Mm-hmm. Uh, next will be Oscar Palmquist, a six, eight junior. He averaged one and a half points a game in 15 uh, appearances. Uh, and he shot well from range, but a uh, 46%, but in limited, obviously attempts. That's again, same story. He's, he's yep. another guy, same deal as with Reber. Can he defend better? If he can, he will earn more minutes. He will get more opportunities and that will probably benefit the Rutgers offense, but he's got to check. Finally for returning players, Jalen Miller, six, two sophomore point guard. Uh, he was good defensively, uh, trouble scoring and uh, you know i guess you'd assume if paul mckay he's the your starting point guard he may be the backup he's the first in line for that role because he played it last season and again if you can guard people steve peichel is is going to be comfortable playing you even if you're a little rough around the edges on offense 
And that was Miller. I was a good descriptor of Miller last year. Good defensively, rough around the edges with a ball <laughs> in his hand. So he needs to get better. And he's going to have some competition for that backup role. But having a year in the system, already knowing that he can get the job done defensively gives him a leg up. I would agree with that. And already can tell a difference when we've talked to the uh, the previous teams, the amount of players returning in Rutgers, very different than the other teams, <laughs> where, they're, where they're, you have almost like a turnover roster completely. Right. That's a, that's a really good point. It, what does that tell you? It tells you that a program is established. So let's talk about the newcomers. There are a couple of them. Uh, first, we'll start with Cam Spencer, 6'4 transfer guard from Loyola, Maryland. Maryland. He averaged 18.9 points a game on 47, 35, and 86 shooting. So he's a you know plus 30, 40% shooter from three his first two years. Uh, average, also grabbed 4.3 rebounds a game and averaged 3.2 assists per game. And so he would obviously be one who could potentially take over the point guard, backup point guard uh, responsibilities behind Mulcahy. I actually think what he's probably more in line for, I, he could certainly be a secondary playmaker. I think he's more in line to fill that Geo Baker role as a starter, okay, yeah. you know? Yeah. Um, they hope so. Now you can't expect that all that production is going to translate. Uh, that would be surprising if he was playing at ex- exactly the same level of production as he did at Loyola, Maryland. But the fact that he was so good there suggests that there's a chance, you know, could he be a nine or 10 point a night guy? Give you mid thirties, three point shooting, give you some playmaking, grab some rebounds. Yeah, I think that's possible. Um, and they need somebody in that role. And, you know, they, they feel pretty good about McConnell and Mulcahy. They need a third guy in that mix as a starting wing opposite uh, McConnell. And it would be good if it was him. Uh, and then it's always the same question, right? Like coming up from moving up from a mid-major to. Yeah, the, exactly. The Are you going to be able to do you need that? Do you have the separation that you need to get the shots in or et cetera, et cetera? It's so much, you know, I've I've. I've always been very, very skeptical about it. And in the last few years, there have been just enough guys who have pulled it off that my skepticism is slightly less hard line than it was, say, two years ago. But I will say this, even the guys who have made it work, I think about a guy like Mike Smith at Michigan is a good example of this. He had to completely reinvent the way he played. You know, very, very different. Tyson Walker at Michigan State, I I wish played a little more like the way he did at Northeastern last year, but he played differently. You know, he didn't come in and and play as if he thought he was the go to guy on offense. I I actually wish he would have um, a little more often, but you get my point. Oh, yeah. We'll see if the if if that happens with, with Spencer. Right, because because you from being the man, the one guy who everyone relies on, now you've got to try and fit your way into a role right. in, in the team. Right, it's a totally different sort of way of approaching the game. Yeah, my, I, I raised Mike Smith because Mike Smith was a guy I was very skeptical about, in part because his play at Columbia reflected someone who was really, really inefficient. He was not a good three-point shooter on a percentage basis. He just took a lot of shots. And in Michigan, he was much more judicious with the shot selection. His percentage went way up, even as his volume declined. And he focused more on just being a guy who kept the ball moving, ran the offense, gave him a steady hand. 
uh, and it worked. It worked for him and it worked for his team. Not everybody can do that. So, you know, we'll, but I think that's finding that right balance is the, is the path for success for these transfer up guys for the most part. Sure. And, and every situation is different, every team. So you know, absolutely right. I mean, yeah. Smith's on the next year. It may not work at Michigan. Uh, next, it would be Derek Simpson. Yeah. Six, three freshman point guard from New Jersey and uh, someone who obviously they're hoping to take over that role uh, in the future. Yeah. And then that's the kid who I think, you know, he showed offensive ability in high school. Uh, he would be someone who would be in competition with Miller for the backup point guard role. And so in his case, it's probably, the question is probably, can he guard well enough? Yeah. In some ways you feel like, and I think why we sort of like Peichel uh, is that he does in many ways sort of feel like Izzo in the sense that he, he values the same sort of, yeah, same sort of, you know, things as far as defensive and rebounding and sort of cleaning that up and then worry about offense later. Yeah. There are certainly differences. I mean, Rutgers has never been a team that's looked to run ever, but there are some basic different or basic similarities in some important areas, you know, and one of them definitely is what you just alluded to. It's hard to see the floor consistently at Rutgers. If you can't guard people. Uh, Next would be Antoine Wolfolk. He's a six, nine, 250 pound post from Cleveland who had offers for play football as well. Yeah. uh, The, the sense I get is kind of a raw guy, but one that seemed to have a good deal of potential. He's a big guy already. I mean, he's got big 10 size now athletically has some ability to move. So he's not stiff. Uh, but again, raw is the operative word here. Rutgers needs some depth inside. They could, uh, you know, Reber and, and Palmquist are big enough that they could probably pitch in at the five as well if need be. But I, I think Pico would feel better if he could get even 10 decent minutes out of somebody else uh, backing up Omarui at the five. And finally, uh, Antonio Cole, he's a late addition to the class, 6'9", 205 pound, pounder uh, forward, who was originally a 22, reclassified at 23 to play high school, and then came back to 22. Yeah, he was going to go the prep school route and and play an extra year, and then Rutgers came in and that changed the plans. He went back to 22. Um, you know, a, a guy with some good length projects as maybe being able to help them on the wing as kind of an oversized wing a little bit. But I think it it remains to be seen how ready he is uh, to go this season. We'll see. So then let's take a look at this Rutgers team. You have the team ranked uh, ninth. That it's a little bit less than what they were last year, mainly because I think the departures of of Harper and Baker that they're going to be kind of tough holes to fill. And I, I feel like in some ways the Pykel feels a lot like to me, as far as a coach, a lot like Kirk Ferentz. I was at, at Iowa when Hayden Fry finishes uh, tenure at Mich- at Iowa football team, Kirk Ferentz took over. They were a terrible team, but you saw, you saw a culture that looked like on the field, like the, the guys, they didn't quit. They played hard. And you thought, boy, if he, they just give this guy some time, you know, he'll, this might be something. And then, you know, a few years later, they're in the orange bowl. I feel this, the same way. We, we saw the same thing in Pykel, right? We saw a team that they didn't look very good, but you thought, boy, you know, they don't, they play hard. They, they seem to know who they are. They play uh, really tough defensively and big 10 basketball. And you thought this team may have a chance if they give him time and he gets a few players, like you mentioned before that they turn around. I, and I, 
And I guess the next question really is, is this team going to be able to become more than what they've been where they sort of, at this point, you could say they're competitive, but they really aren't challenging too much for the big 10. Right. And, and I think, I think that, you know, being better than they've been is going to be very difficult. And, and I say that because I just think, you know, if they had Harper jr back for another year, which he could have opted to do, he, he elected to go to the go pro, but he could have theoretically come back with a COVID year. Uh, we'd be having maybe a little different discussion because he would give them a proven potentially elite offensive go-to player. That's what this team lacks. I think Omarui is going to have a really good year and I like Mulcahy. I like McConnell, but they don't have a guy that just really terrifies you as an opposing team um, on the offensive end. So I think it would be enough from my perspective, if they find a way to tread water in terms of uh, what they're able to produce as a team, I think for them to do that much even is probably going to require that they get back to basics a little bit more. Uh, I mentioned earlier, you look at the rebounding numbers, you look at the defense and it was still defense was good. Overall, the rebounding numbers weren't, if they could get back to those staples and really do the job the way they did several years ago, that might be enough, even with a little less offensive firepower to still maybe squeak into the tournament. But the reason I have them where I do and not maybe a notch or two higher is that it's hard to see unless some really pleasant surprises happen where there's going to be a lot of offense coming from, you know, um, I think having point a point guard like Mulcahy he helps because he'll make other guys better. But I just, I think it's, I think there are nights where it's going to be a struggle for Rutgers to score enough points. Yeah. You definitely feel like they're about five years. They're sort of like that. They were four years ago. Don't you feel like as far as the talent level? That's right. It feels like, just before they got a guy like Harper jr. You know, it just feels to me like they're, they're that, that half step short in terms of what they might have available um, on the offensive end. I do think they're going to be good defensively. I wouldn't be surprised if they are back to basics as a rebounding group. We'll see if they could surprise offensively. Ironically, you know, one thing that would help is if, Guys like Reber and and Palmquist proved to be good enough defensively for Peichel to trust them, because I think if those guys play a lot, the offense will be better. But they've got to defend yeah. well enough to play a lot, so they're right. interrelated elements, you know. This is definitely a team you th- see that they want to play in the '60s. They don't want to play in the '80s. You wouldn't imagine. No, absolutely not. Yeah, they want to. They want to play a half court game. They want to control tempo um, and yeah, not get into a track meet because it's, it's hard for them to win a track meet. Yeah. You got to have better shooting and, and they certainly don't have the athletes. I think well, better athletes. Yeah. I mean, they just across the board, you know, better depth, a lot of things that they don't really have. Uh, yeah. The, the one thing you mentioned earlier about the rack, I, do you remember the old arena for Penn state? I don't, whatever before it that became the catacomb that it is now, but those oh, play- before Bryce Jordan. It was such a cool place to watch games, at, at least on TV, because those students were like standing on the out-of-bounds line. It was like, it must have been a fun ex- environment for them. And then I don't know if they just yeah. moved them 
80 feet or a hundred feet away from the court or something. Because now it's like, there's no one there. It's, it's something that, and, and we, we get into, you know, get off my lawn territory <laughs> with some of this stuff, but, <laughs> but it is true. It is something, the charm of the sport has lost a little something as schools have done the inevitable and, and gone out and built better and better arenas, um, you know, and, and you lose those quirks. I mean, I can think about what the big 10 was like, you know, 30, 40 years ago where, you know, the vast majority of buildings were that they were old barns that were quirky, you know, Minnesota with the raised floor, even some of the places that still exist, Mackey arena and whatever they're calling Illinois place, state farm, <laughs> Jimbery, whatever it is, <laughs> used to be assembly hall, the Illinois version. Yeah. Um, those places had an incredibly intimidating vibe to them because on TV, the way they were lit, you couldn't see the crowd. You could hear them. You couldn't see them because it was pitch black. The only thing that was lit up was the floor. And that brought an aura to it. I think about places like St. John's arena at Ohio state, which was a barn Jenison. Obviously I still tell people this all the time. <laughs> Breslin's a great place and it's got a ton of history associated with it. Now I wouldn't trade it for anything, but I'm telling you on a big night, a big game, no place has rocked the way Jenison Fieldhouse did because of the nature of the building. Yeah. You know, um, I remember Iowa's old gym, I remember Wisconsin's old gym, all these places that were all had that quirkiness to them. Very few of those things left. You know, that's why it was kind of cool to see Michigan State get the experience to go to Butler and, and play at Hinkle mm -hmm. um, last winter because that's one of the few that are left. So, yeah, we're just with um and but Rutgers is an exception. Rutgers has got that and I got to say I don't get the sense that it's likely to change anytime soon. I don't I don't sense that there's a a push to build something new anytime soon so we may be able to enjoy the uniqueness of that place for a while yet. Yeah, I think the Rutgers athletic department is broke. I mean, I think, I think they're right. they're, That's they're why losing I'm money saying, every exactly year. Why I'm saying no matter how big the Big 10 contract yeah. was, they're still going to lose money. I'm not quite sure what they're doing. Yeah. yeah I I feel like in basketball especially there is a huge advantage to if you have a really good home court atmosphere that you can't get in other sports with even like football. I mean, there's some to that as well, but having the students right down the floor, uh, it, it would seem to me that if you're a coach, you would want to try and push, unless there's a huge amount of alumni who are paying a lot of money. And I cannot imagine that's a case like at Penn state, right? Moving those students away really hurts your program, right? It, it gets rid of the excitement. It makes it less fun to go to games as a student. And, and it certainly gives you a disadvantage or you know, it's almost, it's almost like going to Northwestern for, um, you know, for a wake Northwestern barely has a home court advantage when they, when you play them either in right. football or basketball. Well, look, this is, it's one of the things that Izzo really emphasized when he got the job was prioritizing the student section. Right. And I think the places that have better home court advantages, one of the things they share in common tends to be that the proximity of students to the floor. You know, it's one of those things. Look, as someone who is no longer a student, uh, I'll put my age that way. <laughs> um, I don't want to be around kids behaving the way that they do. I want to be able to enjoy watching the game. But 
I also want them to have the impact that they have. So you've got to give them that proximity. You have to put them in a spot where they can actually impact things, you know, because 19, 20, 21 year olds who may or may not have had things to drink or whatever <laughs> before, um, before the game, um, will behave differently than adults in their forties and fifties. They just will. And you want them behaving differently if you want that home crowd impact. So, yeah. So overall, I guess we're going to say Rutgers number nine. And I don't know, is there anything else to add besides that? I think I would just say that my read is kind of going along with where I have them in the big 10. I would not say that they're out of possible NCAA tournament contention for a bid, but right now I would guess they end up on the wrong side of that equation. I just think they're a little short offensively, but I have a lot of respect for, for Steve Pico as a coach. And I think he's once again, going to make them a team that you really don't relish playing against at the very least. And if enough things break, right, you know, I can squint and see a tournament <laughs> team there. It's just, I got to squint a little too hard to feel good about predicting it. I think the one thing we don't know as well is, how the Big Ten does in the non-conference portion of the season, right? Like if they do really well, our perception of the Big Ten yes, we assume at it this will point help. is going to be down from the last few years. If they have a lot of success in the ACC Big Ten Challenge, maybe the these other holiday tournaments, you're going to perceive them differently. And a team like Rutgers is going to get the benefit of the doubt when it comes to the tournament selection time, right? And that may be the difference of getting in as well. In my mind, on a year-in, year-out basis, the Big Ten – 14 teams in a good year, you're probably talking about maybe eight bids. Sure. Nine's probably a little strong. So that's why I say where I've got Rutgers, I probably feel like they're just on the outside looking in, but they could finish a notch or two higher and it wouldn't be a total shock. And that might be enough to get them in, but you're right. Non-conference play always has an impact on these things because it's, it's primarily how the major conferences sort out amongst themselves, you know, what you do in November and December has a lot to do with how the conference is perceived. And, and then that starts to be a, there's a reinforcing mechanism. Once you get into league play, if the league is seen as being good. Right. Yeah. Cause if your league is perceived as poor, even if you do well in the league, it doesn't help you as much as it would obviously. Right. What we talked about with Rutgers, Rutgers had enough opportunities left in their big 10 slate that they could get enough quality wins to still get in, even with a rough start. If you don't have that, those opportunities are not present, you know? All right. We'll close it there. We'll come back next show and talk about number eight, Wisconsin. Finally, I'd like to remind you that there is the beat rod contest where you can make your own prediction for the big 10 standings and how they'll turn out. So you can email us at TFFINOTS at gmail.com. You can Submit your entry with your, along with your name on 1 through 14, and we'll use the seating for the Big Ten Tournament to, for the final scores. Also, as a tiebreaker, make sure you add in the amount of points you think Michigan State will score in the season. The winner will get a T-shirt, a logo from the Final Four is on the schedule, and also the opportunity to, turn, to show up on our show if you'd like. But until next time, the Final Four is on the schedule. Go Green! <laughs>
Because you know the tiniest thing can make the biggest difference when it comes to keeping business moving. We get it. We're the same way. Offering access to product experts to help you quickly and easily find what you need. So whatever your industry, you know you're always getting professional-grade products. Call, click Granger.com, or just stop by. Granger for the ones who get it done.